Welcome to Dirt with Dermot and Paul. And we are back down in Cork this week. There was so Cork. much there was so much to see in Cork, but one of the main reasons for our visit was I wanted to show you a rooftop garden that has inspired me over the past 18 months of lockdown. Because here's a guy and a gal who decided what they decided to do. Do the most bizarre thing in some ways. They got a load of soil, they shipped it up on top of a roof, a flat roof. In a real gritty part of the city centre. City centre of Cork. And they grew veg and turned it into a farm and have flowers and fruit and veg and polytunnels and all sorts and of hens. Of the, um, hens, a whole farm up on a roof in Cork City, which is a bit nuts. And high tech. Yeah, yeah, uh, fancy robot things and all sorts. So, yeah, yeah, it's going to be really cool to hear what they have to say. Um, and we're going to lead into that as well by talking about the real cost of fruit and veg, because what they're doing really makes you think. If you live in the city or if you live in the suburbs or even if you live in the country but you're not aware of your surroundings or you're not aware of soil or gardening, you go to the shops and you get your stuff for dinner. You never think about where it comes from. You think about what it looks like. You make a meal, you eat it and whatever. If we continue to act in that robotic way without understanding how plants grow and what we are eating and how it's produced, we're in trouble. And what, by producing that, we are doing to the planet and to everything else. So therefore, we're going to chat about the real cost of fruit and veg. Dirt, a Go Loud original. Herman has said he needs all his reserves of energy just to get through the training. Well, if anyone knows how to dig deep, it's him. Why are you showing me Bruce Forsyth? Is that you? I didn't. Were you on Strictly? I was, yeah. Did you not know that? No, I didn't. Never. What year is that? that is that 2004 or something? Yeah. You look very young in it. <laughs> I still look very young. No, I know. You haven't aged. No, I no. like how you have the detail, you have the date, you have when it was. Was what I you right? Did. Was, it, was it 2004? Yeah, it was ex- exactly 2004. Is that 16 years ago? No. How did it's you know that? It was 2006. Years ago. I'm really good at years, actually. I'm really good at hearing a song, knowing what year it was, you know, all that kind of stuff. It was... But I love Strictly so much. Oh, do you? Yes. Oh, well. Now. He doesn't know what Strictly is. Well, I know it's about dancing around something. Um, what what was it like? <laughs> dancing with some. Okay, in yeah. case we have listeners who know as little... About Strictly <laughs> coming out. Well, I mean, it's... Yeah, yeah, yeah. And what was it like? What did you do? Did you win? I didn't. Oh, I don't hear about it early. <laughs> I was out after a month. So it wasn't too bad. I wasn't the first or the second or the third, but I think I was the fourth. But... And what dance did you go out on? What 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 did it? I haven't a clue. What did you learn? What steps did you learn? I learned how to deliver a baby because that baby <laughs> was born that week. Okay. So it didn't really matter, did okay, it? Okay, no, that was good. You weren't picked out. So. And Paul, <laughs> how hard can it be? Hang on a second. Well, easy. There was a chance you were going to be on Strictly while your wife was at home minding your newborn daughter. Well, oh, what's worse? What's worse? She came home from hospital the day before the grand final of Strictly. And which took place in Blackpool, and I said to BBC, I can't go. Do you know what they did? Because it was in Blackpool that year, which is right the way across the country. They sent a helicopter. Oh, that is so naughty. <laughs> that is. <laughs> they sent a helicopter. They sent me in a helicopter from London to Strictly in Blackpool. My agent Nick brought a bottle of champagne. So by the time we got there, by the time we landed, on our ears, uh, and I had to dance. Okay, we're going to need, uh, we're going to have to put up on Instagram some of the original dances that you did. Do you remember, was it ballroom or Latin? Oh, oh we found some on YouTube and you banned us from sharing them. Yes, it was there's your answer. Pretty diabolical would be the only thing. To... It, it was pretty diabolical, but well, the I, one they showed on YouTube anyway. I had at least, I was in the series of Strictly with probably the worst dancer in the history of Strictly. So I, I kind of wasn't the worst of that series. But it was fun and they were a nice crowd. I am so sad that that was 2004 and it couldn't be Strictly 2021 or 2022. I would love to see you on Strictly and I didn't watch it back then. Are you that addicted to Strictly? I love It's the most fun. It is just, it's so much fun. And it's not like other reality TV shows where it's kind of like throw some poor peasant into the 
you know, for the gladiator to, or what's the, you know, in Do you not get over Rome? after a while though? It's sort of like, you know, same format, dancing, yeah, some people get kicked out. Yeah, but this was the second series, Paul. It was very early in its life and it was... It was very interesting and they were very nice and it was amazing to do a Saturday night glitzy BBC thing from Television Centre. And come here, did anyone have an affair the year you did it? Ah, uh, there was all sorts going on. <gasps> we're going to have to chat about this. Jesus. Off mic. I didn't realise you were such a gossip. <laughs> I'm not, but it, like, the Strictly Come Dancing is just, you cannot... It's a cult. You cannot believe that people st- still go on it knowing that marriages break up over this programme and you think it can't happen again this year and then it does! It's like a religion for you. You're absolutely addicted to it. This is Well, it's brilliant. escapism, isn't it? And it is one of those glitzy Saturday night and you are amazed at what people, they go from hopeless to less hopeless week by week and then some of them become very good and then you have your own theories about them who really is elbowing everybody else out of the way and wants that glitter ball like nobody so it's all hilarious but I remember I mean my wife was giving birth you know so she had the baby and I walked in the hospital room and the television was on and Donny Osmond was on the screen and it was on It Takes Two and he was saying I really love Dermot now that is a surreal (laughs) moment in anybody's life oh my And then Claudia dressed up as Sinead O'Connor when I was out and sang, mimed, nothing compares to you. And she made a little uh, cape for Epi with with a a pink satin cape with a shamrock on the, glittery shamrock on the back. So all that surreal thing. Um, You know, the whole team in front, behind, the dancers, you know, having the crack with Brendan and... um, What's his name now? Uh, 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 Anthony. Anton Dubeck. Uh, Anton, yeah. And knowing them all, and knowing them all to this day, because you still bump in. They all come to Chelsea Flower Show, so you still bump into them. So they're decent bunch. <laughs> Paul is just... Ro- You've just cleaned out the back of your head there. You rolled your eyes so hard. <laughs> Whatever. <laughs> Dirt with Dermot Gavin and Paul Smith. A Go Loud original. Speaking of surreal... <laughs> Um, the Garden Festival. Did you see our arrival? No. Oh, no, I didn't miss your arrival. You rode in a bo- on a boat. Yeah. yeah, well, we were rowed in on a boat yeah. by some poor local fishermen uh, who lost all dignity by rowing two men. No, every woman in Balanskelis well, no, fell in love with him and they became a hero. Well, yeah, there was all that that happened. And <laughs> oh, yeah, but that, that, was, that was funny because did you see the way we were dressed? In your flowery outfits that you had for your Sindo article. So Morris is out on the... He, Morris rowed us in. Okay, uh, rowed the boat into the festival. That was hilarious. Two days later, he's in the butcher. And there's a woman in the butcher. Oh, yeah, I saw you. Those two boys. Was it a wedding? Was it their <laughs> wedding? <laughs> Well, there was 200 people, there was a big marquee, there was the two of us in the boat and rode into the shore, there was this big welcome. I mean, it had all the elements, um, apart from the dancing, we weren't allowed to dance. Yeah, and apart from a groom and groom. Well, yeah, that too. Anyway. Um, The festival, what did you think of it? You were the one who was dressed up to your eyeballs last week because you realised it was happening. It's still... Still too early to understand it. It worked, and it was Was very humbling to see. Yeah, it was a success. It worked. People were very happy with it. The speakers, all the events, were kind of flawless. There was one event that was just it was all shiny magic. Yeah, there was a moment there in the Madhouse Tea Party. I just looked around at this beach cafe in Balanskelix. And the joy, the blue skies, the food, the effort that people had gone to with the hats and the dancing and the music, all of that was extraordinary. And then we had fine dining in St. Finian's Bay for 120 people. And the meal was, and it was everybody gathered together who had come from all around the world. And then we had this range of speakers on diverse topics, you know, the, uh, Brian from the Cork Rooftop Garden Marty Staunton on fashion and gardening, how the influence extends there. Mags Ridden from Bumblebee Flower Farm, talking about growing natives. Um, 
And Alan Parr from Doreen talking about his journey through the National Trust coming back home to Ireland and looking after a gardener. It was amazing. One of the happy accidents of the Garden Festival was our centrepiece, this amazing gramophone. We met the sculptor just a couple of weeks beforehand down in Cork and he said, I have this thing. Would you like it for the festival? It's not any gramophone because it's taller than about two people. It's three metres high and indestructible. It is the centre. It's it's like the fountain in a plaza in the middle of Rome. It's an amazing piece of work and we put it with the Banaskelligs Bay in the background and it plays music and the music is awesome. We had a lot of jazz and then we had insects talking and telling us about their lives. Uh, yeah, it's great acoustic from it and it was a really cool centrepiece and everybody loved it and they were photographing it and all sorts. And he was really cool. He was, yeah, yeah. Uh, I brought a gramophone to your festival <laughs> and now it's here and now we're putting it in position. Can you fire it up and we'll have a, a quick listen yeah, if that works? Here we go. difference in acoustics when you walk around that's uh yeah it's a nice do you know what as well i think it's there's something about that this draws you in visually but then the sound kind of takes you away because it, it focuses you in on something you nearly forget about it not yeah, forget you, about you it you forget about like... that because like yeah if you forget you're looking at a big giant ground and then it becomes about the sound what music is that playing that is dizzy gillespie and night in Tunisia. and i saw when i was in new york i saw well, it was also meeting all these people uh, that were, for the most part, keyboard warriors. And all of a sudden, they were in real life and they were there. Irishi coming from Nigeria. Oh, Lagos bad. in Nigeria. Sarah coming from England. Who came from Portland? Uh, so you have all of, all of this... Just surreal, and all these people mating for the first time. They were incredibly nice and kind and supportive to and about each other. And it was all very surreal. Now, it was shattering, but it did work. There was some magic in the air. I still don't understand what it was about. Dirt, a Go Loud original. Did I ever talk about my trip to Kenya and the woman I met in Kenya? Uh, no, actually, you haven't. So I had this remarkable trip that is very problematic in many ways, as we kind of realise when we grow up. Actually, it was problematic for me then because it was with a Christian charity and I'm not any of these things. And I kind of only realised I was in the, on that circus of will he do this, will he do that? And I found myself on a plane going out to Kenya to witness... What was happening over there, what this particular organisation was was doing over there, and one of my roles was to open a well. And this whole white saviour thing, and the village all gathered together and they all clapped me in. And on the plane on the way over, I'd been reading some magazine about the snows on Kilimanjaro melting. And then as I was opening the well, I found out that the water originates on Kilimanjaro and knowing that in time to come there wouldn't be snows on Kilimanjaro and this well was saving the women and children from walking maybe 10 miles a day to collect water and carry it back to the village and the celebrations were very real and visceral and amazing uncomfortable at the time I ended up having a row with the church which isn't ideal is it uh, but, you know, whenever you, uh, it, it's best to um, to wake whenever the awakening uh, kind of happens. And But one thing on that journey really amazed me. And one, one person I met, um, so it was in 2006. And I met a woman called Damaris. And she was a farmer. Her husband had left to go and work in the city, as a lot of people do, migrate to the city. She was on her own, and she was told she could only grow 
beans and maize and a couple of other uh, uh, crops. And the issue there was the lack of water. And the rains did come, but when they came, they were torrential, a bit like the rains we're beginning to get in this country, absolutely torrential, and there was no way of saving any of this water. But this woman was really kind of remarkable in that she single-handedly built five water tanks and created a series of gutters, sloping pavements and channels. And every drop of water that came down in those rains, she caught or diverted and then caught. And they were all made from just mud bricks that were then plastered over with mud, but they worked. And from being told that she could only grow a couple of crops, she now has citrus trees, beans, maize, pumpkins, kale, onions, cabbage, pawpaw, mangoes and bananas. She developed a small nursery, has 140 citrus trees, not just for herself, but for the village to take to market. She was then able, this was in 2006, and I often wonder about her, she was then able to send her kids to school and provide employment from her own initiative. So knowing what was happening, knowing that we're using the resources and the energy that causes climate change, knowing that patterns in terms of life and maybe in terms of rainfall was changing, witnessing the opening of uh, of this well, it really led me to think about equality in terms of food and our natural resources and how unfair the systems are and how we really need to think about what we're doing to this planet, the resources, how we farm and the true cost of food. And I think what Brian is doing on the Cork rooftop farm is very important. Not so much because of the food that he's producing, but because of the messaging that goes out for it. So he produces food on a roof and in a market garden and he sells it within metres of where he produces it. And I think what you're saying there sort of manifests itself um, every couple of years at Christmas time. And indeed, every Christmas time for, I think, five or six years ago, particularly, I was sent in on Christmas Eve to get some spare fruit and veg and what have you. And in the end aisles of these supermarkets, they were selling off veg for five cent. And the reason, obviously, was was they were trying to get people in to... It was a price war, and all the supermarkets had this price war. I think every single one of them had their veg down to pretty much peanuts. And... You know, there's these people that are over in those African countries struggling to, you know, grow crops and to sell them and to keep their families alive. And here we were in the West using this food as a marketing tool, effectively, and using it to get people into the shop. It was, you know, the money the farmers, they claimed, were still getting paid whatever they were paying them. But the, uh, the shops were using this really important commodity as this really horrible tool to just get people in to just come to our shop, you know, uh, look at us, we're great, we're selling this stuff off for nothing. Um, I did actually buy four pineapples that day and I rooted them. Uh, but that's a different story that we'll talk about some other time. But it was, it really was like, what are we doing? And you see that in the supermarkets. And even when you buy fruit and veg in the supermarkets today, uh, we have often said, like, God, you know, that is so cheap. When you think of the work and the effort and the time and the commitment that goes into growing and to producing that stuff. And I know a lot of people will, I guess, find this hard to swallow because we're saying this stuff is cheap and people will be like, well, it's not that cheap when you have to run a family and you need to do this and run a car and insurance and all that. But I guess uh, looking at it from the point of view of the grower, of the people that we are you know, familiar with from working in our industry, we know of the heartache and the work and all of that that goes into producing that stuff and seeing it being sold so cheaply is a little bit heartbreaking. So what has happened and what's the cycle been? Because when... I was young, I went to the market, which was Murr Street at that time, with my mum and all the fruit and veg was weighed out, put in paper bags and we brought it home on the bus. And it was markets around the country or you grew your own. Um, And then there was the advent of the supermarket, which the supermarkets did an absolutely wonderful job because they made food and a variety of food and very fresh food available to people cheaply. And to kind of deliver that food to supermarkets, you had big companies come in, buy up lots of land, grow 
single crops, like, you know, a thousand acres of lettuce maybe under or whatever it is, or spuds or corn or what, uh, citrus fruits. I mean, I remember being in, I think it was Florida uh, seven or eight years ago and driving behind a convoy of, a convoy of huge trucks that were just loaded with oranges. And this was an amazing thing because there might have been 50 trucks absolutely crammed with this fruit that is still, you know, associated with health and zest and uh, still quite exotic to us because we can't grow them um, outside in this country. So food became really a commodity of the consumer society rather than something we valued as something that was grown. Yeah, before the war uh, in this country and indeed lots of other European countries, we were not quite self-sufficient, but we had been self-sufficient. Uh, during the war years in particular, the Second World War, we basically became entirely self-sufficient again. I think Ireland as an island always has been because we have a low population, lots of good agricultural land and we're lucky. Um, and before it, there wasn't basically enough food in Europe. And all of a sudden, after the war, uh, lots of these cap things were set up and agricultural initiatives and the European Union was indeed set up. And that looked at producing food you know, quite seriously, because there was a big population here and the last thing they wanted was a repeat of the Second World War where people, in some cases, literally didn't have enough food. And it meant that for a while we were so good at producing food that we had surpluses of it. The technology increased, we got better at producing it and we had mountains of cheese and you often hear of the cheese mountains and the butter mountains and all of this. And the wine-like. Yeah, yeah, all of that because we got so good at producing this food that... We basically had too much of it. And how did we get food? Get good at producing it? Was it technology moving on? Was it artificial fertilisers? Was it all a kind of false dawn? It was a little bit, yeah. The agriculture, I suppose, it was a revolution because we had the chemicals that really only came in to play in the 50s and 60s as a whole. And they came in to, to increase yield. And yeah. there was this, uh, you know, study after study done um, uh, uh, and, you know, seminars uh, given and people going out to farms to encourage people to increase yield by adding nitrates and phosphates to the soil. And in the early days, maybe there wasn't a huge amount of information on the damage that these phosphates and nitrates could do to our water systems, to our land, how they could deplete the body of the soil. Yeah, and also we then used herbicides and things to kill all the weeds and to lose competition with all these other plants. So therefore we could grow fields entirely of cabbages and have nothing else, no other weeds, no other competition have rows and rows of this most perfect crop that was in the best condition, had no spots on it, looked brilliant, but really and truly we were actually causing lots of other problems. By because doing we had the advent then of the super weed, which uh, was immune to the weed killers, and then we had um, genetically modified crops arrive on the scene and all the... We still have. I mean, they're still, I think, technically banned in Europe, although... A lot of soya is imported from the US, which is grown uh, with genetically modified uh, kind of stock. But yeah, we're, I suppose it's always developing. And we are, you know, beginning to understand now that we have been getting very good at producing this food, but we're nearly doing it detrimentally to the environment. Not, not nearly, not well, nearly, because there's so many issues there. If we look at the amount of cattle and the cattle belching or farting and all the methane that's been produced and the effect that that has on, uh, on climate. It's something that was humorous years ago and is now, we're realising, very, very real. The national herd is absolutely enormous because we can grow, we grow very good beef in this country mm. because our grasslands, because the amount of rain we get because of this moist mild um, island that we often talk about. Because cauliflower is only worth 30 cent a head, so why would we grow that when we can have this other thing, beef, cattle, dairy, that's worth a lot more? So a lot of it you know, comes down to that. It's just a matter of money and farmers are like anyone. They have businesses to run and they need to make they need to make a dollar from that, I suppose. So there's huge issues here. Everywhere you look at the farming and food producing se- sector, when we encourage people to grow their own or when we learn from people who are growing their own, what we learn first is about the taste of a potato or a tomato, 
when you grow it yourself. It bears little resemblance to that. It's pretty much not comparable. If you have taken a tomato fresh from a bush on a warm summer's evening, it is the most divine taste. You go into a supermarket, you buy a watery bland one in a plastic wrapper and it's pretty rubbish, to be honest. Because that's what we've been demanding. We've been demanding every type of fruit and vegetable every day of the year. Yeah, it's all uniform. It all comes in perfect. It's all ripe at the right time. And we have, you can buy strawberries on Christmas Day. You can buy kiwis, usually come into fruit at Christmas time. You can buy them in July. So it's all about, you know, seasonality has left us in terms of supermarkets but as gardeners seasonality is one of the most important things and we often talk about it and you say it all the time about you know we live on this amazing island and the reason this island is amazing number one is our temperate climate and number two is our seasons the fact that we have you know slight variation in hot and cold and we have very definite autumn and winter and spring and everything else and that makes growing and producing food on this island uh, possible and in terms of growing plants it makes it very exciting because this is constant changing it's never quite the same so the awareness of what we're doing to our land by using all these interventions is growing people understand especially in the last year and a half with what we've all been through that it's it's not particularly easy to grow your own but it can be done and it's very very satisfying and it's as as easy here as anywhere anywhere on the planet. So the resource we have is space, generally good fertile soil, uh, four distinct seasons and a growing awareness of the value of good food. Yeah, and I think the pandemic sort of changed people's minds a little bit about that in terms of they suddenly went, oh God, you know, our food has been shipped in from across Europe, from across the world. And if these supply chains break down, which in some cases they were doing during this pandemic, uh, we don't have tomatoes, we don't have fresh fruit. I think for a while, I remember I had to do the shopping at the first lockdown and there was no peppers. You couldn't get peppers in any of the supermarkets because there was some issue with the supply chain and therefore they just didn't exist. And, you know, it was a very first world problem. We didn't have peppers in March or April, but that's what happens. And that's very possible that that could happen into the future. So by growing a few things ourselves and by having that idea of seasonality and buying locally produced food that doesn't travel all the way around the world and having it in season is far better. And people have opened up their eyes to that and realised, oh, maybe it's better that we do this and spend just that little bit more. Because people years ago... Now, you know, we're obviously in this first world society. We're all very lucky that we have all of these things. But years ago, people used to spend a huge portion of their annual income just on food to survive. I think it was nearly 40, 50 percent in times. They say now that about 10 percent of the average income is spent on food. Uh, Now, I think that really does depend on your income. And this is one of these things, you know, how much are you earning in that? And it's, it's a sensitive topic, I guess, in that respect. But we are spending a lot less on food and I suppose we're not realising the true, you know, as we say, the true value and the true cost of fruit and veg because, you know, to get locally produced, seasonal, in, you know, quality food, you do have to spend that little bit extra. So why I've always been inspired by what Brian and Ty do on the roof garden is that buying food that's grown locally, it avoids all sorts of stuff. They're not using chemicals, so it avoids ingesting um, stuff that isn't good for us. Um, it avoids shipping and it avoids the pollution that transportation costs, causes. It also allows us to get our food fresher. It tastes better, therefore, and it's more nutritious and appealing. So smaller, you know, maybe the future is in. Uh, I'm not being naive about this because the big food companies will always, and food ingredient companies will always exist. And we're particularly good at those sort of enterprises in this country. But an awareness of buying local and buying from smaller operations, I think, is increasingly important. Uh, yeah, yeah, I agree. Uh, and as you said, we're sitting at it from the point of view of we're gardeners, we kind of understand this and, you know, we like to eat, if we're possible, locally produce good quality food and not everyone is as lucky as us to be able to do that. Uh, but I think it is important and hopefully more and more people will wake up to that and realise that, you know, if you want 
good, really good quality food that's sustainably produced that you have to go that extra mile to find it and hopefully it will become more and more commonplace. Dirt with Dermot Gavin and Paul Smith, a Go Loud original. It's a sweltering day, we're in Cork City, but we're, I suppose, in the innards of Cork City. We've walked down a laneway, bustle around the place, cars pulled up, kids playing with their parents, and there's a stairway, a new metal stairway going up to the sky. And up in the sky, there's timber railing, festoon lighting, and a whole lot of plants. We can see raised beds from here. Now, we know the story of this. It's the Cork Rooftop Farm. And we've been following on Instagram their progress of making a farm in the sky. A market garden, in effect. But I think there was chickens, polytunnels. There was uh, towers for growing plants. Uh, lots of raised beds. All sorts happening up there. And it's in the heart of Cork City. We are, as you say, up some back alley in Cork City. And... Yeah, uh, it's a weird place for a farm, but let's find out why it's here. It's urban, it's gritty, amazing blue sky today. And we want to, Brian knows we're coming, but we want to surprise him. So they're in the process of putting this staircase in, but it's all behind fences and stuff like that. But I think we can break in and walk up the stairs and surprise him that way. Let's try. Right, he's making a fool of himself. We've made it. Bottom of the stairs, passed through security fence. We're on the roof. <laughs> Cut. <laughs> we broke through your security systems, I'm afraid. It's the crack. Uh, oh, yeah. It, it, it's, uh, <laughs> the hens don't really provide much of a security system in here, to be fair. So we, we installed this greenhouse last June. It's a polycarbonate greenhouse. It's 80 metres squared. And... We received delivery of the towers in December last year. And so the there's six. Towers are. They're they're what they're called an aeroponic. Uh, aeroponics is the method of growing. So the plants are suspended in air, predominantly. There's a nutrient tank at the bottom which has timed pump a timed pump in it, and that pumps the water to the top of the tower. The water falls down through the tower, feeding the plant and hydrating the plant. So it's kind of like horticultural witchcraft because you're using, yeah. you're growing plants without soil. Correct. Yeah. We, the growing medium we use is Rockwell. Um, it, you it, did, I remember through Instagram, you did, you, you were trying at sheep's wool, you were trying sure, at various still, different ways. We're still working on that. I have a few people that we're kind of talking with to refine the process that's involved there. What's the advantage in growing plants this way in these towers on yeah is it space is it, i mean it must be because i mean yeah. you're going upright you're yeah. putting in 40 we've, plants in a meter sure we, like yeah. in in these ones we've 44 and in the micro towers we've 176 plants wow. so there's four and a half thousand plants in here when we have the 60 towers inside we've changed it just recently to having 50 because we're going to move 10 of the towers down into our new shop so the principle there being when plants reach maturity we'll move them down into the, the shop and people will order to harvest, so we'll harvest to order, should I say. Like so kind of like a cut your own crack. Yeah, yeah, so we'll yeah. only harvest when somebody orders. And what plants are you growing? So I see basil. Basil we do during the summer months. It's still a bit tricky in here in the winter because we try not to use too many heating amendments. But um, mainly leafy greens and herbs. So Asian greens, mizuna, mustards, uh, wasabino. Uh, we do about three or four different types of lettuces. Kind of change it up a bit just to keep it fresh. And you... Grow them here yeah. on a rooftop in the middle of Cork City Centre. Where do you sell them? We sell them about 15 yards due north. <laughs> building we got kicked out of. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So oh, we really? set up, uh, there's a farmer's market on Cormac Street every Saturday from 9 till roughly 2, 3 o'clock. And we set up our stalls out there, bring all our produce out there and sell it out on a Saturday. As and, well as and does it sell out? It does. The whole principle of, as you know, of why we started was just to grow for ourselves. So what we're seeing here on the outside, around in a row around the polytunnel, which is a polycarbonate, rigid polytunnel, 
which is a magnificent structure to have, but around that you have a series of raised beds built on pallets. This started off as a flat roof with nothing on it, with no guardrail, with no lights, with no nothing. Will you go back and tell yeah. us the story from the beginning? Maybe we'll perch on the side yeah, of one so, of these. Yeah. So, basically started 18 months ago um, at the start of the lockdown. Same as yourselves, kind of looking, we're all at home now, what do we do? And what was your job? My job was I was a wholesaler of fresh cut flowers to florists. So my father founded that business nearly 50 years ago and I, I've gr- grown up with it all my life. And when I came out of university, I took it on. And we were forced to close due to the government restrictions in late March last year. And I live in the city centre. So the apartment I live in, it runs adjacent uh, and onto this rooftop. And myself and Ty... We're looking to do some gardening. Ty is, is your business partner in yeah. this who founded it with you. Correct. And she's from Brazil. She's from Brazil. And uh, she was living, but again, just a building adjacent to the rooftop. And we were looking to occupy our time. And we said, let's give gardening a go. We had a look at a little courtyard. That I better not lean out onto the road. The beauty of rooftop farming. <laughs> <laughs> we haven't lost anyone yet. Yet. Um, but... It's it, Yeah, so it started off with just let's give a, a go to just growing some food for ourselves because, you know, we wanted to occupy our time. I would have worked a pretty hectic schedule of maybe 80, 90 hours a week. So everything came to a full stop, a dramatic stop, and there was silence everywhere. There was no traffic on the road. You found yourself with the gulls, with big open skies. The weather was fantastic, mm-hmm. thinking I'll start a small garden, I'll grow something that I can use. But it's turned into something that is... Life-changing and inspiring because hand-in-hand with deciding to do something, you decided to let people know about it. Yeah, so we were were documenting from day one. So that was important to us. We, We wanted to document it kind of for our own sake, just to see the progression for ourselves. And if people took an interest, well and good. We didn't have any intentions to 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 develop it into a business it was purely for our own uh, our own enjoyment um, and it unexpectedly kind of captured people's imaginations you saw this roof garden pretty soon you made the decision that you were going to do this yeah. on a grand scale yeah. and you the, the thing that amazed me about it was you just set to work really at the time there was a lot of things going on in my own life the rooftop farm changed my life and at, my t- at the time my life was changing because unfortunately my mother passed so this the rooftop farm was my my therapy it was where I went to clear my head to to find uh, solace and to try and I suppose get away from the hurt that I was feeling at the time and the positive reaction we received really led me to, to see that, you know, this is something which should and could could be developed. And what was your experience of growing stuff? Like, less than amateur, <laughs> do you know? Um, really, I'd seen my dad do a lot of it. I knew that if you put seeds in soil, they're supposed to grow, and if you water them regularly, they should... Oh, that, that helps. But other than that, really didn't know anything about why or how anything grew and Ty was the same she took inspiration from her grandmother back yeah. in Brazil who correct. she used to garden with a little bit correct and she got such a buzz out of it and still gets a buzz to see a, a simple seed turn into a plant that you can eat um, and that enjoyment still now is not lasting us to be able to walk out from my apartment in the city come out here pick some kale and chard with some eggs from the chickens and make an omelette is the simplest, most beautiful pleasure that uh, you know I, I could ask for really in the city centre. What did you plant for us? <laughs> we went a bit mad with the planting, so we, we literally went onto brown envelope seeds one night online and lots of beautiful photos of gorgeous veg and, and fruits, so we, we ordered a lot. Uh, some of it worked, some of it didn't. And, you know, we got... Beautiful, about five different types of lettuces we had about 15 types of tomatoes this polycarbonate tunnel last year was used for our tomato crop and cucumbers and um, courgettes and all sorts of different things um, that we grew in little black buckets and we had potatoes in the same spot as we have them this year um, 
we had chard, we had kale, we had loads of different types of herbs. And also, we wanted to bring a bit of, I suppose, life into the rooftop. So, yeah, and we, we brought our six lovely hens up. We built a chicken coop for them. And they, they serve a number of purposes. One is entertainment. Two is uh, providing us with a, a, a delicious protein source and eggs. And also, they do our composting. So we, 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 they're busy girls. They don't really, they're oblivious to really all the, the pleasure that they give us. You introduced bees up onto yes, the... we're harvesting the honey for the first time this week, actually, oh, from the you? bees. Yeah, I, tried I to saw bees on the cabbage flowers and I was kind of going, there's honeybees, but there's <laughs> hives. I didn't see hives. So this, cool. uh, I, I was kicking myself during the summer. So we've, we've had this hive during, since August last year. Um, and during June they swarmed so what that means is there was another queen she left the hive and with her she took all her worker bees and they swarmed around this olive tree and I saw that Ty sent me a photo and I was like oh my god what the hell is happening we have a woman in in Cork City who has 40 odd hives on rooftops around the city Sarah and I rang her up I was like what's going on she said they've swarmed you need to put them into your other hive straight away so never done this before. So we literally were scooping thousands of bees. Yeah, the whole regalia. Um, and scooping them into the main box of, the, of our flow hive here. Um, got them all in, hoping that we had the queen also in there. Because wherever is the, the key, isn't yes. it? Yeah, once you have the queen, they'll all stay. If you can find the queen and she stays and they're happy, they'll stay. But we got them all in there. I was babysitting them for hours. Eventually had to go to bed. Uh, what I didn't know was I should have sealed it up, left it a layer hole and driven them out to Coachford. So you're supposed to transport them miles away uh, and that way it, I suppose, it grounds them in wherever the new place is. Oh. I didn't know this. So next time it happens, I'll know. I woke up the following morning and they'd legged it. Oh, and runner. done a runner <laughs> and someone else was dealing with a swarm somewhere around the city or miles away from here. But... I could have had a second hive. It would have been great um, because the flow hive is something we want to try. It's a different, it's a, a modern approach to, to a beehive. Um, and that uh, flow hive is just from uh, an aesthetic point of view where you can see the yeah, honey bin. It kind of looks like a vending machine for honey. Yes, <laughs> That's exactly what it is. That's literally a beautiful description of it. So... You already have the honeycomb preformed to an amount to an, a, a certain stage, so you can see down the middle there's a there's a, a gap in the honeycomb, and the bees fill that in. And what you do is you get this bar, and you twist the honeycomb. That creates the crack, and the f- honey flows down to the bottom, out through a tube here and into a jar. So you don't need to interfere with the bees, and you effectively rob them. Uh, which is a kind less, of a stressful thing but you for rob them, them anyway if you yeah, it, yeah you do but you're doing it in a less stressful way for them and it's just it's quite a clean process we haven't been able to do it yet but this is the, the theory behind the method and they've been a, a kind of a worldwide wide success this, this company Flowhive uh, it's an Australian company so um and we're, we're hoping to get that going this year but next year next and, year and right. on the beating you've got on this side of the yeah. so we went from one side of the um, roof to the other and it's turned into a pollinator garden correct we put so that in that was one of the first things we put oh, in you have, actually you have, you have fucks here <laughs> bless you yes yes <laughs> gesundheit um, <laughs> we, we do they, they, we planted them last year and they've come in bees love fucks here they're, yeah, they're one of the well, I, uh, I, I being from the home of Fuxia, who doesn't uh, love Fuxia? <laughs> oh, everyone. Um, but we, they, 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 the bees do enjoy them, and we, we, this place was barren of life, I guess, when we came up here. There was no ecosystem uh, at all. So one of the first things we did was put down all the soil that we had sifted out of the the ton bags that we re- originally received. So I guess the rocky kind of rubbly, narrowly kind of quote-unquote poor soil uh, went into these beds for the, uh, for the wild flowers. And we seeded that up last year and it, I think it was around the time you came, it was really in full bloom uh, last year, Dermot, and this year it all came back. So certain varieties were more prevalent earlier in the summer and then we could see the flow and the change 
throughout the summer months, which was lovely to see that that uh, progression. Um, and the bees just go mad. The butterflies now you can see our, our beehive here we have on the roof. They all they all forage on it, and it's an essential component for us to have insects and bees and caterpillars kind of going around and then butterflies and yeah why is it a, an essential component well last year especially we had tomatoes up here so for tomato plants you need pollinators um and bees are those are those creatures so bumblebees especially are very useful for the pollinating of our of our tomato plants last year and we had we had hundreds of them up here so you developed this, you started planting, you started harvesting, you innovated with the grow tars and the hydroponics. But soon after that, opportunity came knocking and a rooftop wasn't enough. Yeah. We, well, what spurred on everything for me personally was the trip I made to Sweden last July. Sweden had no lockdown measures at the time last year. They were going for herd immunity. So flights were still in operation uh, travel was not recommended but at the time I didn't really give a hoot uh, I was really just obsessed with this rooftop farm it was what was you know the whole thing but my mom was quite raw I wanted to get out here and, and, and see what this farmer in Sweden was doing that I was following online Richard Perkins it, it looked incredibly inspiring so I wanted to go and learn about regenerative agriculture and permaculture uh, so I did went there for 10 days and it blew my mind. It absolutely, what I saw, what I learned, um, it gave me enough knowledge to, to motivate me to start my own market, our own market garden. We, at the time also, we befriended a farmer near Coachford, which is near McCroom in County Cork, Ger Buckley. Went and visited him a few times during the summer. And I proposed that a little half acre that was adjacent to his, his home, could we put in a market garden there? And he said, not a bother, off you go. So in October, the end of October last year, we set about establishing our permanent beds. So what I mean by permanent beds is we put down a layer, we, we all our beds, so our 10 metres long by 75 centimetres wide. It's a standard market gardening dimension, 75 centimetres width. And the length was just functional for us. And you decided on a set of principles. Correct. No dig being the, the main, one, main principle. So with no dig, what we're trying to do is disturb the soil as absolutely little as possible. Uh, when you plough or till or dig your soil, you're exposing the carbon in the soil to oxygen. They bond, forming CO2, which goes up into the atmosphere, which, as we all know, is a major, major issue for global warming. So the act of, of cultivation that we've known for the best part of 100 years has been a contributing factor to global warming. We want to show an alternative to that, which is no dig. So we're not exposing this, the, the, the soil to... Uh, we're not ploughing it up, we're not tilling it, we're not disturbing it. So we're trying to keep the carbon in the ground. Carbon is the building block of life. We want to keep it stored in our soil. So what we do is we create this mulch layer on the top, six inches of compost, four inches of wood chip for our, wood, our pathways, and that protects our soil there. And it also breaks down the organic, uh, the life and the, the organic matter that we put down feeds the soil food web that we're protecting. So it's, it's feeding the microorganisms that make nutrients available to our plants. That's the basic principle of our market garden. And you attacked that through the winter with gusto. And it was, again, very inspiring to see the work, that whole cycle of work, the delivery of the enriched soil, that's been spread out, the pathway's been put down, and then a whole new batch of hens. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. so again, it was another enterprise that I'd seen in Sweden, was pasture-raised poultry, so laying hens. Um, so what I mean by pasture-raised poultry, so another invention that has somewhat revolutionised farming is the, the invention of the electric fence. What that allowed people to do was to move herds around fields in a much more organised and 
coordinated manner. So what we do with our hens, we have 400 of them. We fence them in a 400 meter squared paddock. They have and a little. They live in a caravan. Don't they live in a caravan. Don't they? they? Do, yeah. <laughs> they're uh, they're they're mobile hens. So they have a little mobile house that they we call it their little B and B. They go in there for 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 their nighttime uh, security, and they go for they rest in there, and they also lay in there. Um, and we move that every two days. So during that two days, the hens forage for worms and bugs and whatever they can find and dockleys they clean them out they love them they can't go through the stem (laughs) but they absolutely eviscerate anything that's on the stem which is a farmer's best best where does it go from here Brian because I know your plans are just getting uh, day by day they grow as well as your, your gardens we are going to expand what we're doing market garden wise we're going to look at growing flowers commercially obviously I have a wholesale flower business so we're going to grow to supply that wholesale business it's something that I'm acutely aware of that my wholesale flower business has a very large carbon footprint and it's not something that sits well with me I have on one hand I've got Cork Rooftop Farm which is trying to drive on an ethos that's very much with uh, a green agenda and then I have on my left hand although I'm selling pretty things and they're beautiful and everything they're grown all over the world imported from all over the world and I want to try and do something more sustainable with that through my wholesale uh, channel. Well Brian you and Ty the work that you have done both here at the Market Garden through Covid through the most challenging of times have been an inspiration and what Paul and myself find really quite amazing is you do it all. You show there's no kind of glossing over or getting people in to do the big jobs or whatever. You're out there early morning, late at night. You're working it. You show the successes, but you also show the failures and you show how to build a market. It's been incredibly inspirational for us and for people in this country and all around the world to see so well done continued success and we'll be keeping an eye on you thanks very much guys cheers great to have you Dirt with Dermot Gavin and Paul Smith a Go Loud original well I found that amazing I found Brian and just do you you know what he's a little bit show busy but what he does he just gets on with it he's built this rooftop garden He's built a market garden and his plans are astonishing. So I found him so inspiring. What's coming up next week? Next week, we're going to talk all about autumn gardening and what to do in the garden because this is a season to do so much. So we're going to talk through through it all with you and what to do. Oddly, it is the season of gardening. It is the season for getting out and doing things and it is the season for planting. So if you're a total novice, if you haven't a clue what to do with your garden... We're going to Don't worry, it all starts here. We're going to tell you from the A to Z of how to plant up a garden. You know, it all happens in the autumn. If you want to prepare for I next year... I hate A to Z guides because it makes absolutely no sense. But what he's saying is totally great. Uh, that Yeah, we're going to talk all about how to plant a new garden. But it won't be an A to Z guide because then we'll have to start with apples and end with zebras. And oh, we can't do Okay, that. we're going to go one to ten. <laughs> That's better. We're going to go... Abbott ZZ Top of How to Garden. See you next week. Dirt is a Go Loud original and it drops every Monday on the Go Loud app and wherever you get your podcasts. Dirt with Dermot and Paul.